Living a life that brings peace. Not a life, not living a life of peace, but living a life that brings peace. Mark, I'm going to share with you from the Gospel of Mark today. The scripture that is highlighted, the one that I've put in your connection today, is this. Um, Jesus says to them, uh, come aside. Do I have the right one? I think I do. Yes. Uh, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. That's the, that's the scripture, but that scripture is embedded in a whole story that Mark gives us. Let me, let me back up and tell you what that story is, because this is near and dear to my heart, because I remember this in my life. Maybe you don't. Maybe, uh, maybe you haven't been there yet, or maybe you're old enough now that you're like, no, I don't remember those days. But I remember the days that I began in ministry. I remember the days that I first got married. I remember the first days that I went off to college. I remember a lot of those firsts in my life. Anybody else remember the first in, in your lives? To, are those still important to you? Well, they are to me. Um, and Mark begins, the Gospel of Mark, begins with the stories of Jesus calling his disciples. Uh, I am today in the, only the sixth chapter. But by the time the, the writer Mark gets to the sixth chapter, we've already talked about John the Baptist and the fact that he has been beheaded. We've already talked about Jesus and the calling of his disciples. We've already talked about Jesus doing miracles, healing people, casting out demons all of these things. When we got to the fifth chapter, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. In the fifth chapter of Mark, uh, this disciple, this apostle is going to record for us, Jesus looks at his disciples for the second time and he says, okay, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. Do you remember when you went to work at your business? And, and uh, I remember the first factory that I ever worked in, I had to make uh, cardboard boxes, and I, I did, would just take boxes, and every day repetitively, 12 hours a day, we worked 12-hour shifts, I would just sit there on this stapling machine and staple boxes, and man, was I happy when they came to me and said, hey, we would like for you to go up here and work in plastics and do some extrusion work and those types of things. It was like, yes, I don't have to staple boxes anymore. I did that for months, and I was ready. It was like raising your hand saying, put me in coach, I can do more. And so the first time Jesus had been teaching his disciples, they had watched Jesus cast out demons. And Jesus, after he had done that, would look at them and say, now do you know what I just did? They would be like, well, kind of. And he'd say, well, stick with me. And you'll see it again. And Jesus casts out another demon. Finally, the disciples would look at each other and they'd be like, yeah, we get it. We get it. He would heal somebody. And they would see as Jesus went up to somebody, they, was, they saw Jesus' faith and they saw what he did and they saw how he prayed. And Jesus would look at them. You know, you've read the scriptures just like I have. Jesus would look at him and he would say, do you, just, do you see what I just did? And the disciples would be like, well, kind of. But then he'd do it again, and he'd do it again. and do So we get through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these stories repeatedly, Jesus healing, Jesus healing, Jesus healing, looking at his disciples saying, are you learning? And finally he looks at them and he says, it's your turn. Now, 
I don't know what you feel like the first time somebody is ready to give you your own authority, put you in there. But for me in life, it was like, I, I'm ready to do it. I came out of seminary. And I had been, man, that's three and a half grueling years. Uh, 95 hours of, of coursework. That's grueling. You get into your first church, and man, you're ready. And you stand up there on those first uh, Sundays that, that you're ready to start preaching, really preaching from the Word of God. Because before you get to seminary, when you're serving churches and doing that, you've got books that you're reading so that you can, you can uh, use somebody else's sermon and you just tweak it a little bit. But that's not, once you've been to seminary, the expectation is you can write your own sermons. You can do your own research. You can do your own study. And you can preach your own sermons. And boy, you're ready. You come out of seminary, you come out of school, you're ready to be a preacher, you're ready to be a pastor, and you're just dumping everything on the people. Generally, it's in a small church at that point, and you know what happens. The, the service ends, and you're standing at the back, and you're shaking hands. You all remember this. You've all been uh, in that. I, I know I don't stand at the back here and shake your hand as you go. I, I, I get that. But for 30 years of my ministry, I stood at the back of the church and I shook hands of everybody as they went out. And you know that as people were going out, they would look at me and say, well, that was interesting, Tim. You see, I had dumped everything I had into that sermon, everything the professors had ever taught me, everything that I had ever studied. It was terrible. Well, that's, what ex that, that's exactly what happened with the disciples. Jesus, they're ready to go. He's, he's been asking them, were you watching what I did? Yeah. You think you can do it? Yeah. They go out and they try to heal people. The people aren't healed. They go out and they try to cast out a demon. And the Bible tells us that the demons turned around and said, Jesus, we know. We have no clue who you are. And they beat up the disciples. The people that were demon-filled would literally turn and beat up on the disciples. The disciples came back to Jesus bruised and broken, unable to heal anybody. And, and they said, Lord, we don't know what happened. And Jesus said, then watch me do it again. Watch me do it again. In Mark we get that second time that Jesus sent his disciples out. Let me share it with you because this is wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, it was wonderful to me. He said to them, I want you to go in twos. Mark the sixth chapter. And in whatever place you enter, whatever house you enter, Mark the sixth chapter, verse 10, stay there. Whoever will not receive you, depart from there. If, if they don't want you there, if somebody doesn't want to be healed, don't try to heal them. If somebody doesn't want the demons of this world cast out of them, don't try to cast them out. If somebody doesn't want to show hospitality to you, don't force them to show hospitality to you. If they want you there, go in, live with them, rest with them, heal them, be with them. If they don't, Shake the dust off your feet, Jesus says, and depart. For assuredly, I say to you, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Boy, this is a tough one. I'm not preaching on this today. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those people. It doesn't mean they're 
worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It just means that in this world, you don't want the assistance, the help, the healing, and the wholeness that, that God is willing to give you. you you're going to have a tough time in the world that is to come. So, here it is, verse 12. The disciples went out and preached. They preached that people should repent. They cast out demons. Can you almost see it? I can, because I had dreams of this in ministry myself. Outside of ministry, I had dreams of this uh, when, when I wanted to lead anything. When I wanted to be out there actually doing it, rather than just talking about how to do it and studying how to do it. I was making a difference in the world. So they're out there and they're healing people. And they're casting out demons. They're anointing people with oil. And the people were being healed. After that, we get in the Gospel of Mark the story of, of John the Baptist. He's going to be beheaded. This is the thing that brings his disciples back to Jesus. So Jesus has been off on his own, still doing miracles, but the disciples have been out two by two, and they've been doing the same things that Jesus has been doing. He has just now multiplied this into this area of Galilee. And so Jesus is everywhere. But all of that comes to a crashing halt because Herod's going to do something rather dramatic. He's going to cut off the head of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is important to the Jewish people. John the Baptist is the one that has come out of the wilderness. He's the one that began to say to people down by the Jordan River, you need to repent, you need to be baptized, you need to turn back to God. John the Baptist is important, and the king has taken one of the most important disciples. They think maybe John the Baptist is Elijah that has come back. They think maybe John the Baptist is Moses that, that is in their midst again. And King Herod cuts his head off. Then that's a whole story in and of itself. But that's the event that brings his disciples back to him. And so they come. They come before Jesus here at the end of that sixth chapter. And it says in verse 30, the disciples gathered to Jesus and they told him all these things. They told him what they had done. They told him what they had taught. And this is Jesus when, when they tell him all that's going on. John's been beheaded. We've been healing people. He says, come aside by yourselves. You need some rest. How did you feel when you were on a roll? Did you think you needed rest? No. When I was young, I was like, yeah, I'll work the extra shift. When I was young, boy, you get that call in the middle of the night and, and boy, you're ready to go. I mean, you're ready to go. Full of energy, full of health. One of the things that, that I've had to have conversations with since I uh, had my recent bout with, with my body failing me was a conversation with, with staff parish, with friends of mine in the area, um, with friends that I've known for a long, long time, that said, you know, golly, I'm creeping up on 60. Another year, I'm going to be 60 years old. Maybe I can't do ministry like I did when I was 40. Maybe I can't work 
12, 14-hour days, two, three days a week, and make all of that work. And they would look at me and they would say, well, you think maybe? You think maybe it's time to start working smarter and not longer? You think... Jesus looks at his disciples who are full of all this energy and all this success. You've been there, haven't you? And he says, you need to rest. Do they rest? No. They're ready. Put me in, coach. We've got this. So the story continues. Jesus saw, so he's, he's told them, you need to go and you need to just rest for a little bit. And, and find a deserted place and, and just rest for a little bit. Verse 34, Jesus comes out and he sees the multitude. And Jesus is moved with compassion for them. But do you see what's happened there? Jesus comes out. What does that mean? It means Jesus went out in somewhere. It means Jesus separated himself from the ministry. It means Jesus stepped back from what was going on. There is no indication that the disciples in all of their zeal and and fervent desire to serve Christ, that they've stepped back at all. Jesus continues to do what he does. He saw a great multitude. He's moved with compassion for them. Because they were all like sheep that didn't have a shepherd. So what does he do? He does what he's always done. He begins to teach them many things. And the day, it says, is far spent. And you know this story because it's the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples come up and they say, you know, there's, there's no place here for people to get food. You need to send these people home. Jesus' response is classic here. No. Guys, I tried to send you somewhere. I told you that you needed to go and get some rest. And the very next day, the crowds are on him again. Jesus had himself withdrawn the disciples, whatever they're doing, I, you know, I don't know uh, everything that they were doing, but I can just imagine they're, they're telling the stories, they're talking about tomorrow. Boy, who are we going to heal tomorrow? What demons are going to be cast out tomorrow? We're a part of this. Ministry is happening here. Jesus has withdrawn himself from all of that. The next day comes, Jesus sees the crowd, he's ready to engage the crowd again. The disciples get to the end of the day, the people are hungry, the disciples are hungry, there's no food anywhere, and the disciples said, send them away, Lord. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way this works. You feed them. We don't have anything to feed them, Lord. And so Jesus does a miracle. Two fish, five loaves of bread, thousands are fed, so on and so forth. So they get to the end of that day. And Jesus says to him again, you need to go somewhere. And in 2022 lingo, you need to recharge. 
you need to get yourselves to the place that tomorrow you don't run into this again. And Jesus himself, he goes to the mountain for the evening. Well, what the disciples do is they get in a boat and there's a storm out on the lake. So the sails aren't going to work because the wind's pushing against them. Because they're trying, this time they have come west and this time they're going back east. If you've ever been on the Sea of Galilee, you know that the wind is always blowing It's always blowing west. So you have an easy time going west, but when you go back east, or no, when you're going east, uh, you have an easy time on Galilee. When you want to go back west, it's a tough time. So they're at the oars and they're pulling and, and so on and so forth. Jesus has gone, he has fasted and he has prayed. And he comes back out looking for his disciples that night and he finds them out on the water. This is that famous thing where Jesus goes walking out on the water to his disciples. They think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, peace. Peace. What does it mean to live a life that brings peace? Well, I think that uh, for me, one of the things I have to do is I have to understand, uh, as I showed the video before, you know, all the kids, what, what do you think it means to bring? I love the little girl that said, sometimes you scoot. If you are a Hebrew, you have a very clear understanding that there are two ideas of peace. In English, we only have the word peace. In Hebrew, you have the word shalom. And shalom is the peace of, of uh, essentially, your welfare is good. I'm good. I'm at rest. I'm at peace. Shalom. And so they use that in songs, they use that in prayers, they use that in blessing. May, you know, may shalom be a part of your life. Being at rest, being at peace. But then they also have the Hebrew word that we translate shalim. Shalim. And shalim is the peace that you are going to see used when it says, when you come to God, you are to bring a peace offering to God. Shalim is that idea in Hebrew of bringing things back together. It might be an attitude of repentance. Remember, repentance is simply a turning away from one thing and turning to another thing. So you've got shalom and then you've got shalim. And both of those are this concept, this idea of peace. Not necessarily uh, always talking about a life that is, is just at rest. Sometimes peace is that, that effort and that accountability that you bring into bringing your life back together. And so when we get to the New Testament and Jesus is using Greek words for peace, what is it that Jesus is doing? Well, in essence, what Jesus is doing is he's bringing the two Hebrew words together. And he's saying, John 14, and my peace 
I give to you. Not the peace, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, that the world gives, but my peace. In other words, a wholeness of life that is brought together because you do the things in life that God needs you to do. My peace I give to you. So he brings shalom and shalim together when we get to the New Testament. So what does that mean for the disciples? Well, he is repeatedly saying to his disciples, if you want to bring peace into your lives, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to find time to separate yourself from your passions. The question becomes, what, what do you do during that time? A life that brings peace begins with a life that is at peace. Is yours a life that brings peace to others? Is yours a life, you see what happens out on the lake? Because the disciples have pushed themselves to the point that they've hit a wall. They see something walking out on the water and they're jumping up and down in the boat thinking that they're seeing ghosts. They've they've pushed themselves to the point that they've hit a wall in their lives and they're not coping very well. And Jesus gets into the boat and His very presence brings peace. We have many times in Jesus' ministry where He's going to be in the midst of a storm, when He's going to be in the midst of somebody that needs to be healed. He's going to, and He's going to utter some words. He's going to touch somebody. And peace. Not rest. Not, whew, boy, now I can go to sleep. But a life that has been brought back together for prosperity. Is yours a life that when you enter other people's lives, do you bring peace into that relationship? Or does your presence agitate that life? Yeah, you know what I mean? Are you making things worse or are you making things better? A life that brings peace. The Hebrew people had a different understanding of what it means to be a person. Because this gets at my statement here. If you are going to be a life that brings peace to other people, you are going to first have to be a life that is at peace. Because if your life is not at peace, if your life is not whole, whole, and repentant, constantly turning away from the things in your life that are going to make you ill at ease and unpeaceful, shalom and shalim brought together in Jesus' words of the New Testament, then brothers and sisters, when you enter into somebody else's life, if there is already chaos there, the chaos just grows. The Jewish people, the Hebrew people, had a different understanding of personhood than we do. Without getting too deep, let me just uh, let me just tell you this: we 
We are very Greek. That means we have learned the lessons of a man by the name of Plato very well. In our concept of personhood, you will hear it stated almost universally in the Western world, body, mind, spirit. That's a Plato idea. That's a Greek idea. That didn't even exist in the world until about 250 B.C., just before Jesus came. But boy, it dominates the world today. The Hebrews, they would never have thought like that. They didn't think like that. The Hebrews made no distinction between the spirit and the body. They made no distinction between the mind and the body. They understood that there was a part of us that thought. They understood that there was a part of us that seemed to feel emotions. They understood that there was a body... But they didn't say, if I'm sick, well, it's my body that's sick. They would say, I am sick. Because they didn't separate the... It's why, listen to me on this, it's why in the Western culture, it's why in the Christian church of today, when we hear Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit... We're like, three can't be one. Why? Because in our Greek heritage, we have to separate all of these things. The Hebrews were like, well, of course the Father is the Son. Well, of course the Son is the Spirit. Well, of course the Spirit is the Father. God is God. You are you. Well, my spirit is sick. No, your spirit's not sick. You're sick. Because the Hebrew would say, now you don't have to agree with them. All right, Plato might have been right. Plato might have corrected 1,500 years of human thought. He may have been the correction that this world needed. On the other hand, Plato may have been wrong. Because Aristotle's going to pick up on that, and he's going to say, yeah, all the problems of the world are because you live in this body. The body is evil. So if we can just get rid of the body, so when we die, that's great. The body just disintegrates. And we're done with all of that. You see? You see what that Greek, what that Western idea did? And the Hebrews were like, that makes no sense. It's why Paul's going to teach in the New Testament to a group of Jewish Christians, if you want to know what the church is, you need to understand that we're all a part of, what's the image that he uses? A body. And the toe can't say to the hand, and the head can't say... In other words, the mind doesn't get to say to the spirit, boy, you're sick, you need to go work on that. No, your mind says, I am sick. Something's wrong. It's why when Jesus sent his disciples apart, it's why when Jesus went apart himself, he, by prayer, the mind, and fasting things of the body, began to work on himself. Now, uh, feel free, feel free 
to to continue to think that, boy, if you can just get those conditions of your heart under control, and by that I mean your literal heart, I'll just take some more cholesterol medicine or I'll take some more of this and I'll fix the heart and, and I'll be better. That's, the, that, that's like the family that tries to fix itself by saying, well, if we can just get out of debt, then everything's going to be okay. And they get out of debt only to find that their relationship has fallen apart because they've been working like dogs to get out of debt and they've been paying no attention to each other for 10 years. It's like the family or, or the person that says, well, if I could just get my education, then everything will be right. And they have ignored everything else in who they are. Jesus says, a life that is at peace, wholeness, repentance that come together. Okay? And the first step to that, at least biblically speaking, feel free to disagree. The first step to that is that in our lives, it's not about fixing our spirit. It's not about fixing our mind. Boy, if I can just get my mind right. It's not about fixing our body so that, so that things work right again. The older I get, the, the more these lessons come home. I am me. And when something is not whole within me, it's not a matter of fixing something. It's a matter of taking who I am before my Heavenly Father. Because my goal in life is that when I come into your lives, I bring peace, not more agitation. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that your church becomes that in the world that doesn't add to the turmoil, the unrest, the unsettled nature of it. Lord, even if it is we have to challenge the wholeness and the repentance of the world, Lord, may we do it from lives, from a church, from a people that have first themselves come before you, stepped back that we might go forward. All of this I pray in your name.